Uh, if you'd like to have a Bible, turn to Habakkuk. If you can't find it, don't be ashamed to look it up in the index. It's fine. <laughs> find Psalms and go forward a bit, you'll be fine. Or well, actually, start Matthew and go back a bit, and then equally you'll find it. <laughs> okay, so uh, we've come to our second, uh, the second sermon in our Habakkuk series. We're looking at this slightly unique interaction in the Bible. This isn't like some of the other minor prophets. You remember a few weeks ago we were uh, looking at Haggai and we were saying that minor prophets are called minor prophets not because what they said was less important than the other prophets, simply the volume of their work, that literally less words on the page. And so theologians, very helpfully or not, call them minor prophets. It's worth knowing that because you could spend years too ashamed to ask. That's what it means. So, so Habakkuk is also a minor prophet. But Habakkuk's prophecy is peculiar in as much as he's not speaking as if he's speaking uh, the, the words of God. Some of the prophets do that. And, and you might hear, sometimes you hear people prophesy in church, don't you? Sort of, thus says the Lord. What he's doing is having a conversation with God. And he's uh, bringing a series of complaints to God and saying, look at the nation or look at the world for him. Look at the world. It's, it's dreadful. Look, look what's happening. Look at our leaders. Look at the, look at the, the religious people in the, in the communities. Look at the priests. They're all corrupt. What are you going to do about it? And then, he, uh, and then God replies. And, uh, and so there's a, a series of kind of complaints and responses throughout this book. Uh, and here we are. Um, and the heading for this one, starting in verse 12 of chapter 1, is Habakkuk's second complaint. Sounds like he's visiting the doctor or something, doesn't it? But uh, actually, he's, uh, he's, he's complaining to God. Um, so this is happening about 700 years before Jesus was born. And about a hundred years before the Israelites were exiled into Babylon. And if you know something of the biblical narrative, you know that uh, the Israelites came out of Egypt. We probably remember that bit. Uh, Moses led them out of Egypt and they traveled for 40 years to do a two week journey uh, because they rebelled against God. And they get to the promised land, this land that they never had before that. They're getting their own country. And if you are a sort of subsistence farmer, having your own land is of vital importance. Uh, many nations around the world have an affinity with the physical country, the land that we just don't relate to because we're, we go to Tesco's for our shopping. Uh, we don't grow our own food. But if you grow your own food, having your own land is of supreme importance. You are very, very connected to the soil. And that was true for these people. So to have their own land was to have wealth, was to have a future was to have an inheritance, something to pass on to future generations so that your children, their children, their children would have something uh, to work with. And so here uh, they, uh, they get their own land as they've worked their way through the desert. Um, and then, of course, the, God says, that, OK, you can keep all this, this wonderful land. The Bible says it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, not literally, but that's a, that's a kind of metaphor for highly productive Soil. You're going to get a lot of food from this. It's going to bring you wealth and security into the future. And God said, if you, if you obey these laws, if you, if you follow me wholeheartedly, that's how it will be. It's going to continue that way. But if you don't, then it's, there's going to be difficulty. And of course, if you know the story time and time again, in fact, more often than not, it seems, uh, this rebellious people, as the Bible calls them, didn't follow him. And eventually God says, enough. 
and it says that the land is going to spew you out, literally vomit you out. And that's what happened. And that's, that's about to happen as we, as we pick up this prophecy. We're, we're just about to that, in, to that part in the story. And no one really believes it's going to happen. And yet God's been saying it for a long time. If you keep doing this, if you keep carrying on like this, all the things that I said would happen to you will happen to you. And Habakkuk is having a conversation with God around this issue. So let's read verse 12 of chapter 1 down to the first verse of chapter 2. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest of food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch. And station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. And what answer am I to give to this complaint? Father, we thank you for your word. And even when it's challenging and the language is a bit confusing and we're wondering what's going on, we thank you that it's still breathed out by you. And we pray, Holy Spirit, come and help us understand what it is that we should learn from this passage. In Jesus' name. Amen. What's the difference between grumbling and lamenting? Um, what, what's, there, is a, there is a difference, you know, I'm, I guess you brought that out by the question. The Bible says to us in Philippians that we're to do everything without grumbling. Don't be grumblers, it says, and it's good advice. I think as a nation we're a bit grumbly, aren't we? Ever stood in a queue when the till's broken? Yeah, you, you get it, don't you? <laughs> it's really hard in a room full of grumblers to be the one person that's not. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried, have you ever tried to counter the grumble? If you're a teacher, I remember teaching. The one person in the staff room who's not moaning about the head teacher is a tough, it's a tough call, frankly. Uh, and, and it's because it's going against the flow. And the Bible says do everything without complaining, without grumbling and arguing. And what is the difference? Well, there is a biblical way to deal with the issues that we face uh, that isn't grumbling. It's that the same emotions will come to us, the same sense of injustice maybe or whatever it might be, difficulty, challenge, uh, sadness, tragedy, tragedy, that isn't grumbling. And that's called lamenting. Uh, it's, a, it's a different thing and it's something for us, it's worthy of our, of our thoughts. Um, see, both grumbling and lamenting are expressing strong emotional responses to something. Uh, both are recognition that something's gone wrong and that the results of what's gone wrong could be painful, difficult, even tragic. But grumbling is self-justifying. Okay, we're going to have to get a bit thoughtful now. It's it's saying, I knew better, I could do better, I can do better, I wouldn't have done it that way. It sort of elevates yourself, and it's it's very inward-looking, really. Um, And, as I say, self justifying whereas 
Lamenting, which is a biblical understanding, is done in the arms of God. So we might come with all the same things. We might say, why? Why, why is this happening? What's going on? But I'm doing it accepting, by faith, God's sovereignty. I'm reminding myself of his ultimate goodness. And so I might, be, I might have a very strong emotional response to a set of circumstances around my life, difficulty that's happening, things I don't understand, but I'm doing it in the arms of a loving God. Someone said, I heard someone talking about this recently, they said, it's, it's, you, might be, you might be very, very emotionally charged, but what you're doing is you are beating your fists on the chest of a loving father whilst he wraps his arms around you. That's what lamenting is. And it's what Christians are to do with their complaints, with their grumblings. It's to take it to God. It's a recognition that he is God and that I am not. That he doesn't have to answer all of my questions in a way that I think he should. And he often doesn't. And certainly in this story he doesn't. (laughs) Certainly in this story he doesn't. And the Bible is full of lament. Bible, there's a book called Lamentations, but the Psalms are a bit like that as well. And Job, because Job is very much like that as well. We need to learn to lament as believers so that we don't become grumblers, <laughs> which is unproductive and inward looking. We need to look to God, trust him. But when we worship, we are reminding us. I, I need to remind, I think Jeff, you prayed so well this morning. I'm remi- I need to remind myself. I need to hear myself say God is good. I need to hear myself say it sometimes. It's not good enough for it all to happen inside my head. And so worshipping together, making a noise, is important. I need to hear that. I need to go out and in again. (laughs) Speak to myself. David did that often in the Psalms. Rejoice in the Lord, O my soul, says David. He's telling himself something. He's reminding himself. Has he forgotten? Well, yes, maybe he has. (laughs) He just needs reminding. And so do you and so Certainly do I. So the question, I think, for this passage, the question for this whole book is this. Can we believe God is good when we look at evil and tragedy in the world around us? Maybe in our own lives. Can we, can we believe that he's good? Question mark. <laughs> Hopefully we'll come to understand something more of that as we work our way through this passage. So the first point I'd like to make today is this. It's not wrong to ask God difficult questions. It is not wrong to ask God difficult questions. And in verse 13, the first bit of verse 13, we read this. God saying, uh, Habakkuk saying this to God. Why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why? Why do you tolerate the treacherous? And in his context, this is what's happening. We've given a bit of background to the story but what Habakkuk does is he says, the story of the book is this, he says to God, look at our own leaders, look at our priests, look at the Levites, look at how this nation is working. It's full of corruption and greed. And God says, and, and, and Habakkuk says, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to do something, God? Are you going to move from heaven and actually sort this thing out? And God says, yes. I'm sending the Babylonians. <laughs> to which Habakkuk says, what? <laughs> That's not the answer he's expecting. Not at all the answer he's expecting. But 
Habakkuk is not afraid to ask the question in the first place. He's not afraid to do it. He asks another question. Why, God, are you silent while the wicked swallow up the righteous? And it's, it's the, you're send, you seem to be sending even more wicked people than our own wicked people. <laughs> what is going on? What's happening? This doesn't seem to be the answer that he wanted. And goodness me, not the answer that he's expecting. But it does make us reflect on our own story, our own journey as believers. It's easy to feel that that biblical truth, revelation from God, Christianity itself, is too fragile to stand robust questioning. It's easy to feel that. And we can feel that very much internally. Oh, oh, I don't want to go there. Oh, you hear something on the telly or you watch something or you read something. Oh, crumbs, just I'll avoid that. Because we feel, I just don't think it was, I don't think that the system would stand that kind of questioning. That's not Habakkuk's approach, and it doesn't need to be ours either. It's much more robust than we think it is. And we might feel, on a related note, that our own faith, too, is too fragile to stand robust or complicated questions. It doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be. Brothers and sisters, it really doesn't. The answers to our questions for sure take time. It's, it's, it can be hard work to find an answer, but so often there are answers to your challenging questions, the difficulties you might actually have, the things that you are personally facing. So often there are answers. Sometimes it's like buried, like a seam of gold buried in a rock. It's there, but you're going to have to dig it out. You're going to have to go find it. You're going to have to expend a bit of energy to sort through and get to the gold. City Church's most watched sermon ever was Ben preaching about God and suffering. By, by country mile, more people have watched it online than anything else. Because it can be asked. We can ask the question. And I think as people recognise that that's the, that is one of the big questions of our day, it was the question for Habakkuk, it can be the question for us. Just as a little aside... I have many more books on this, on this subject, but there are many books written to help us ask the difficult question. I'll just brought a few along to help us, and uh, maybe this will give you a pointer. So this one's called Atheist Overreach by a guy called Christian Smith, and he's looking at the unquestioned assumptions often made by atheists that they, don't, they, they kind of make their argument, but they assume certain aspects of it that if you push them hard on it, they don't have answers for. It's quite helpful. It's quite a detailed thing, but it's good to certainly good to read. Anything, uh, well, Tim, Tim Keller writes a number of excellent books, Making Sense of God, an invitation to the, to the sceptical. Again, looking at arguments for God's goodness and existence, very, very helpful and useful. Um, if you're a scientist, uh, John C. Lennox uh, writes Cosmic Chemistry, uh, Do God and Science Mix, and that's a bit more of a complicated, uh, detailed read, but it's certainly worth, certainly worthwhile looking for that. Oh, crumbs! Don't, don't. You know, let's not hold Christianity and science up. Oh my goodness, that, that's one of the things we can think. It's not robust enough, but it's. Look, look this guy is a professor at uh, the University of Oxford uh, currently, and makes very, very strong arguments that the two go together. The language of God, I think, he would call it. And then finally. Um, 
Anything by Re Rebecca McLaughlin is superb. And here's one uh, for teens that says, 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity. Really well written, very, very, uh, uh, just a really good piece of work, that one. So there you go. There's a few and many, many more alike. Um, but you're going to have to actually go and read them. <laughs> you're have to, you, so you can't, well, I've got it, so it's done. No, do the work. Um, as we said, Habakkuk is not afraid to ask the difficult questions, and nor should you be. Christianity is robust enough. Your faith is robust enough to ask the difficult questions. Okay, that's our first point, asking the difficult questions. That's what Habakkuk did. Secondly, brothers and sisters, we need a theology, an understanding of God, a faith in ourselves, in our church, in our families, that doesn't just rely on lots and lots of just good things happening for its existence. If, if your faith is, is kind of reliant on just good things happening in the way I understand goodness, in the way I think goodness works, then, it's, then it is very fragile. And of course, Habakkuk is being asked to stretch his faith into a difficult answer from God. God's, Habakkuk says, sort the nation out. And God says, I'm sending an enemy. <laughs> what is happening? If our faith relies on an endless stream, uh, an unbroken stream of experienced, just, just good circumstances happening all the time, then I'm going to be in trouble quite quickly. Life doesn't work that way. At least it doesn't work that way for very long. Anyone who's been a believer for, a long, for any length of time would know that that is true. You see, what Habakkuk could have done was when God says, um, uh, when Habakkuk says, the nations rejected you and God said, sent the Babylonians, he just gets a user error. It would have been on your computer, like shut down. You get on your computer, it's like, oh, the thing's frozen. <laughs> User error. It just doesn't work anymore. I can't get any sense out of it. And faith can be like that if it relies on just a constant stream of only felt goodness from heaven for it to survive. We need a deeper understanding of who God is and what goodness from God looks like. A more biblical understanding. And actually reaching into some of these Old Testament prophets, it, it forces us to, to ask those bigger and deeper questions. What is goodness ultimately? What is it? And we'll come, I think, to that as we push on. However, there are, there are teachings out there. If you go on the internet uh, and, you, and listen to some preachers, the way they preach is as if that's what you should expect. That's the only experience for believers is a, like a constant stream of good things, wealth and health and happiness and peace. That's the only possible outcome for having a relationship with God. That's the only good that could possibly be seen. And if you don't experience that, if that's not your experience, then, well, because either we get does not compute, or no, the answer they would give sometimes is this, that God's punishing you. you no, you've, you're, you're being punished, or at the very least, you are lacking faith. It's, it's obvious, if, if you didn't get the pay rise you expected, then you're just lacking faith. It's your, it's your problem which pastorally is a disaster, just to say, an absolute train wreck. And it's not true either. It's just simply it's garbage. It's not a gospel at all. But there's a lot of it out there, a lot of it. And I want to warn you of it, because you'll probably come across it 
And it, that kind of understanding of God, that just does not fit into this passage that we're reading. It, it doesn't fit. Because how that would work is God says, the nation's in trouble, we need your help, and angels descend and sort the whole thing out, suddenly it's all done. That, that's the kind of answer that you would expect if that's the theology that we would adopt. Now listen, of course we pray for good. Of course we do. Of course we pray for healing. Of course we pray for provision that life would be peaceful. But when the answers from heaven, like Habakkuk's answers, are confusing, we don't, abandon, uh, we don't assume that God has abandoned us. We don't. Because our faith is deeper and greater. Our understanding of what goodness is is more robust than that. And listen, the worst thing that this kind of a gospel does is it projects a lack of faith onto the one suffering. And it makes it worse. And we've probably all had something or experienced something of that. I know even in my own family I've seen that happen. Someone's tragically, challengingly ill and they don't get better. And then the church just withdraws from them because it can't compute. That you know, there must be something wrong with you. It's a horrible, horrible way to behave. It doesn't fit with this passage. It's not biblical understanding of who God is. And I want to warn you against it. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says this. This will give us a hint at what Paul expected from a life following Jesus. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Starts well. Very good. Shall trouble? What? Or hardship? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? Hang on, Paul. This started so well. As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. This doesn't sound like an eternal flow of goodness. To the believer, does it? It sounds like a challenging life. No, in all these things. And here's the, here's the key. Here's where we engage. In all these things. Not removed from them all. In all these things. In the midst of the challenges of life. The challenges that all the apostles faced. The challenges that generations of believers face. The challenges, the intense challenges that our brothers and sisters around the world might face. The challenges that you might face. In all all these things, we are what? More than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, he's off again, I'm convinced that neither death or life, neither angels or demons now, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, nor any height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those early Christians, they knew hardship and opposition. It was horrendous. And as I said, as do many of our brothers and sisters today around the world. But if our, if our theology requires immediate good all of the time to survive, if your faith requires that, you're going to be in trouble quickly. But here's the thing. You will be held hostage to circumstance. Your faith then is, is hostage to circumstance. And it doesn't need to be. It wasn't, uh, as Paul describes for those earlier, as Paul writes that church in Rome, He's, he's saying, this is, this is probably what you'll experience, some of you. But your faith is stronger and deeper. God's love is, is more powerful than just to remove the immediate challenge from you. Don't be held hostage to circumstance. So, third point. We also need a theology. We need an understanding of God of faith that doesn't have me or you as its central character or focus. 
We need a theology of faith that doesn't put me or you in the center of the story of, of the cosmos. You are not, I'm afraid. I am certainly not the center of his story. This story is not about me. It's about him. It's not about, it's not, look, I, I, I get to be part of his story. That's the wonder of it. But it's not a story about me. Does, I'm not the major player. I'm not the hero. And nor are you. It's a wonder that we get to be part of it. But you are not the central character. And here in this story, we find something of that happening too. That we need a broad understanding of what it means when we pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Not my kingdom. Your kingdom. And we get, we get so confused, I think, when we pray sometimes. Are you, are you praying? Am I praying your kingdom come today? Because your kingdom, the results of praying your kingdom come are going to look really different to the results of praying my kingdom come. It's going to look different. It's going to feel different. There's going to be challenges that I don't understand if it's his kingdom. My, my, kingdom, my kingdom relies on getting a pay rise or not. Or God forbid getting a parking space or not. His kingdom is about the ends of the earth seeing the glory of Jesus risen. That's going to look different. It's going to feel different. The answers are going to be different. And that's what Habakkuk's experiencing. Something like that. Tom, um, Tom Oliver, a Guardian writer in a piece from 2020 called The Age of Individualism Must End, writes this. Having a strong sense of self can be useful. Fair enough. But excessive individualism has its costs. The more we see ourselves as discrete entities, the more likely we are to feel isolated and lonely and to show selfish behaviours. As a consequence, rates of anxiety and depression are rising across the world, while the climate and biodiversity crisis deepens even further. So even contemporary writers are recognising this is something of a modern challenge for us. I think it was Mar Margaret Thatcher that said, there's no such thing as society. The person is the political, she said. She, she wanted to change the way we thought about the, uh, ourselves as a nation and others like her as well. The idea that good is what's good for me just, that the only understood good would be how I would ex experience good is not a biblical idea. And, but our, and our cultural bent towards me and mine, uh, you know, social media plays this every time you go on it, every time it puts you at the centre of the story. You're the hero, uh, you're the central character, uh, you're the saviour in the story. That's how it works. It works against this biblical understanding of God's kingdom and his goodness. Uh, it just does. The Bible story, the narrative of scripture is so much bigger it's about it's not just about you as i said you get to be in the story and that's the wonder of it but it's not about you it's a story about god willing winning back a rebellious people a rebellious uh, cosmos in fact it's it's saving a sin sick universe bent on destruction lusting after death as it were and he wins it back that's the story it's not a story about me and my promotion. It just isn't. We need to get that into our understanding. As I said before, for sure you're part of the story. For sure you are. And that's the wonder of it. That's the glory of it. But it's that way around. 
We've got to get it that way around, or we're going to be constantly confused when difficult things happen. And so we pray, your kingdom come, reminding us that the story is greater, bigger, longer lasting, and ultimately more satisfying. God's kingdom brings blessings for all, and not just for all who are alive now. And the Old Testament says, often says this, he's, he's preparing blessings for your children's children's children. I can't even do that. I can't even get close to doing that. However much I might save, or, but I just can't do that. But God is working those things out. And as I said, God's kingdom is a blessing for the lion and the lamb together. This is, this is incredible change. This is an incredible kingdom. Children free to play in the streets unhindered, unafraid. This is his kingdom. Death defeated, sin banished forever. This is the kingdom that we are part of. Not, I hope I get my pay rise. Or can we get better double glazing? It's just, it's just you see the difference. Our, our, our faith must be more robust than it sometimes is. And that bent on individualism is, is counter to what we're seeing here. It says, uh, the Bible tells us that at just the right time, Jesus was born. So what is God doing here in Habakkuk? Well, part of what he's doing is he's bringing, he's working history towards a greater blessing than Habakkuk could possibly imagine. Habakkuk says, what about the nation? God says, I'm sending the Babylonians. And we're like, well, sure, what's happening? God's, God doesn't actually tell him as such. But what we know as we look back in retrospect is God is bringing the times to their fulfillment so that the greater blessing that anyone could have imagined or asked for would appear in Jesus. That's what he's doing. And he's still doing the same sort of things today. Of course, we've seen Jesus. We have a better story than Habakkuk had. And we'll come on to that. But he's still working history out so that all would come to an understanding of who he is. Fourthly, your life is graciously caught up with this greater story. As we said, we pray your kingdom come. You get to be part of his story. You get to be part of his salvation story. That's what it is to be a church, a people. To be caught up in this incredible redemption, purpose and story. Colossians 3, Paul says this, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's not the other way around. His life isn't hidden in you. Your life is hidden in him. Do you see the difference? He's covering your sin. He's adopting you as his own. you, You get to carry his name. You get to be filled with his spirit. You're a child of God. It's an incredible truth, a wonderful reality to be faced with. And Habakkuk's position, once he's made his complaint, brings us back to this first point. He's not sure how Babylon invading can achieve righteousness and justice that he's complaining about. But he positions himself, he positions himself not in anger, but to listen. That's what he does. And if you read that, if you see that at the end, if we could put up the last slide, that's the the last two, the first two verses of of chapter 2. Tell us that. There we are. I will stand at my watch, station myself on the rampart. Of course, it's all poetic language. I will look to see what he says to me. He positions himself to listen. 
not just oh it's all too much does not compute walk away no he's he's positioning himself to listen there is our direction there is our understanding of how to do this this is wise this is wise and biblical and pastorally very helpful it will help you so when we don't get the answers we expect all the other responses let's push them to one side let's listen let's not stop praying let's not stop asking for what we what we what we want let's we don't stop praying for we're healed let's not asking for provision and for peace but we do allow God to be sovereign over these things we need a robust faith like Habakkuk was developing in order to navigate the challenging world that we find ourselves in and then finally the process of salvation requires us to humbly cry save us save us that's the, that's the start point for everyone to come humbly before God and say I need your help I don't have the answer I don't have any answer I don't know where else to go help help me I pray that often often I pray that help I don't know what to do now I don't have I'm the dad at home I don't have all the answers I lead the church I don't have all the answers but I know one who is sovereign I know one who is good I know one whose kingdom I, I desire and love and I will follow him I will follow him and I, I, I and, and yet I even know my own heart too and I need, I need reminding that that's, that's a decision that I continually need to make and we all do and so God's answer to Habakkuk is astonishing and difficult but our answer is better we have more of the story even than he had so Habakkuk says help us and God sends the Babylonians we cry help us and we get to see Jesus we get to see Jesus we get to see him there's still confusion in the story because Jesus dies and his friends rejected they're still challenging the story but it's a better and fuller and more complete answer even than Habakkuk gets we get Jesus we get to worship this God this Lord this King this Prince of Heaven this leader of the armies of God we get to, we get to worship him so brothers and sisters when the answers that you get are not the answers that you need or want it's not an end of your faith sure enough a challenge to it but it reminds us this is how God is working it gives us a depth and a breadth to our faith that is more robust ultimately it's more satisfying and more attractive to those outside because it, it can stand the rigors of questioning and the challenge of actual life not just pretend life and it gives us something to live for it gives us something to stand on because it ultimately it gives us Jesus so when we do communion in a minute it, it, we're coming to it humbly not saying oh, here are all my lovely answers all clear it's saying no I throw myself on the God who is bringing in his kingdom who is the answer even though I don't understand them all not avoiding them but equally not afraid to ask let's pray shall we Father we thank you for your word we thank you for the challenge that it brings to us and Father we Lord, we do want a faith that is deep and satisfying, a faith that others can come and find, that stands the rigors of real life, the challenge of robust questioning, that doesn't have ourself as the main focus, 
uh, but ultimately points to Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would do that in us by your Holy Spirit. And even as we worship again, I pray, help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.